My guest today is Nigel Goldenfeld. Nigel is a professor of physics at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Nigel has a broad set of interests ranging from condensed matter theory to ecology and evolution. Nigel, it's great to have you on today. Sure, happy to be here, Sean. So Nigel, let's just kind of get into your background. How does a physicist like yourself wander into biology? Yeah, that's a good question, since I spent most of my life trying to avoid it. Um, so my background is that I really liked uh, you know, mathematics and physics and astronomy and things like this. And I always hated biology. I never took a biology class at, at school or at university. Um, I, I married um, a biologist and, um, you know, really hated a lot of the sort of classical picture of what, what it is that biologists do. And um, sometime, uh, you know, I worked on things that were like, you know, kind of the lunatic fringe side of condensed matter physics. I worked on how snowflakes grow, which turns out to be really important if you want to understand materials microstructure and how you know, metals form and things like this. I worked on fluid turbulence and you know, phase transitions and high temperature superconductivity. And um, I started, uh, you know, worrying about, you know, complex systems and, and what are called scaling laws, where, you know, systems that are complex seem to show some kind of statistical regularities that are the sort of things that you see uh, in phase transitions. And so I started getting interested in that, the sort of mathematics of that. And that kind of led me into two directions. One was in computational finance, and one was uh, eventually in uh, biology. And uh, my and the because I had worked on how patterns form in nature, the areas of biology that I was drawn to in particular were areas where you have um, spatial patterns and you have uh, statistical fluctuations. And so that really describes ecology for you. And, uh, and then... Um, you know, because the population numbers are fluctuating, so then you want to worry about, well, what about evolution and so on. And so it becomes, you know, much more interesting to a mathematical uh, scientist than the sort of traditional, very descriptive type of biology. And I was making that transition um, about 20 years or so ago, which is just when biology itself was making a transition uh, into, uh, well, not necessarily leaving behind descriptive biology, but certainly um, the field of quantitative biology was really starting to, to bloom. So, so, um, so long story short, I don't really like biology the way that, uh, that it is traditionally taught, um, but the sort of quantitative types of biology that physicists can relate to turn out to be really important. And so now I'm sitting in my office in the Institute for Genomic Biology, which is where I typically work. Um, and around me are biologists, we have a wet lab, and, um, you know, I still do condensed matter physics, but I, you know, can also... I've had this, the experience of going to biology conferences and being there a week. And at the end of the week, somebody comes up to me and says, somebody told me that you were really a physicist, that you weren't really a biologist. And I was sort of thinking, hey, I got you fooled. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Okay. So I kind of wanted now to get into some of your work on um, the genetic code. I think you've done a lot of cool work um, in that area. So just first, as some brief background, can you just describe what exactly is the genetic code? And secondly, how would you characterize a like quote unquote good genetic code? Right. So, so if you read the newspapers, 
they, they will always talk about the genetic code, but what they actually mean is the genome sequence uh, for some particular organism. So that's not what we are talking about here. When we talk about the genetic code, we're talking about a, a map that takes um, three bases that are, are read, uh, say, uh, say, by the ribosome, and then converted through a process called translation into an amino acid that is then stuck onto a growing protein. So the genetic code is, um, is the map that takes uh, uh, four nucleotide bases, um, UGAC, for example, um, and then uh, maps those into the 20 amino acids that life uses to make proteins. And so it, it's a dictionary. And if you think about the combination, so I've got four bases. I'm, the bases are organized in triplets, and they're organized in triplets so that you have enough combinations uh, to encapsulate all the, uh, the, the the amino acids that you might want. In fact, you have more. So you've got four times four times four, so that's 64 are possible uh, uh, pieces of information that you can encode that way. And uh, But there's only 20 amino acids that are known to be used by life in general. And so you have redundancy, and so the genetic code has a lot of redundancy, uh, degeneracy, there's multiple uh, codon assignments that will... Uh, correspond under translation to the same uh, amino acids. So that's what the genetic code is. And then, uh, you know, I, I know you asked me how do you tell what is a good genetic code, but let me let me just explain what the problem was before we get in, in, into that, if you, if sure. you don't mind. So, so it's, it's, it's a really a, an interesting conceptual point that you even can talk about the genetic code. Um, because when you talk about biology, you don't normally talk in terms of abstractions. You normally talk about, you know, here's an organism and, and it's incredibly complicated. There's all these rich behaviors and there's all this incredible biochemistry that goes on. And if you go inside the cell and you ask, how do, how, how do genes get expressed and make proteins? It's incredibly complicated. So, so then you say, well, wait a minute, how is this possible? You're telling me that there is a code table that I can put on a T-shirt. And that tells me if I know what the genome sequence is, I can tell you what is the protein that's going to come out. And I don't need to know any biochemistry to, to do that if I know that table. That's a very remarkable thing. And so it's, a, it's what I would call an abstraction. And the idea for the abstraction came from a physicist, uh, George uh, Gamow. And... Um, and 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 he had this idea that you could there, there should be some code table that would encapsulate all of the complicated biochemistry and the rates and the reactions and you know materials moving around inside a cell things that we today understand in some detail but not complete detail and so so that whole idea that you could have an abstraction is already a remarkable aspect of, of biology in my view i think it's perhaps really one of the one of the most important aspects of biology that you can have such a thing and that it can and that you can think then of biology in a, as a as a map as a discrete dynamical system now, it doesn't work perfectly because there are exceptions to the genetic code things called wobble but it, but it basically that's the first thing I want to say. It's an, it's an abstraction. Okay, so so then the problem is this. So how was this abstraction determined? So if you're Francis Crick and it's 1968, you, you, you're thinking about what the genetic code is. And the you know, 10 years previously, in the, in the late 50s, Francis Crick tried to figure out what would be this map, whether there's a mathematical 
reason for how you could define what this genetic code table would be. And actually, uh, Francis Crick came up with a brilliant argument that explained why there were 20 amino acids of life. And I mean, that's a natural question you might want to ask. If I know this genetic code table, I know there's 20 amino acids, why is there 20? Why not 19 or 21 or 64? Okay, so Francis Crick figured, figured that out. And, 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 and what he figured out was, was to do with frame shifts, as, as we would call them today. So his idea was this. Um, let's suppose I have a sequence, A, C, G, T, A, blah, blah, something like this. So I can read this starting with the A and C and the G and so on. But you could also say, well, the A is actually the last letter of a previous word. So there's a comma after the A, and then it starts C, G, T, and then that's the next one and so on. So, so you know, you don't know where, where the gaps are. So his idea was, can you construct a code where if you, um, if you don't know where the ends are, you can still figure out because the code will make no sense whatsoever unless the code, unless you read it right. And so he called that codes without commas. And, and his claim was that if you worked out with, with, um, with you know, four, four uh, nucleotide bases and triplet codons, what is the maximum number of amino acids that you could, you could code in the, in the genetic code without using commas? The answer is 20. So he's got a brilliant explanation for why there are 20 uh, amino acids of life. Okay. So, okay, you can, in fact, enumerate all of those codes. There's something like 260 of them. Or so. I've forgotten the exact number, but something like this. You can, you can, it's a problem in combinatorics and you can work it out. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. So then you find out that, the, so then a few years later, the actual genetic code was worked out by laborious and brilliant uh, experiments and uh, and people got it you know won the nobel prize and so on and and when you look at the result it's nothing to do with the codes that francis crick had come up with from his codes without commas uh, idea okay completely different his idea was brilliant and completely wrong and uh, and and so and so you you learn from this that you know the sort of brilliant uh, combinatorial symmetry arguments, things like this that work so well in physics have no place uh, in biology. So then you say, well, okay, so then if that isn't the explanation of the genetic code, then what is? And so you have to think, well, it must be evolution. Okay, well, what else is there? So that's, that's obviously the fundamentals behind everything else. So now you go and look at the evolution of the genetic code. And if you're Francis Crick, now fast forwarding to 1968, you look at that and you say, well, wait, how can the code evolve? Let's suppose I have an organism from which all life is descended. And he didn't know that, 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 that such a thing existed, or even that there was any evidence at that time that life did exist from one organism. But let's suppose, for the sake of argument, that's the simplest hypothesis, so let's assume it is true. Right. So now you say, okay, let's suppose it had some genetic code that it had just by some accident. Okay, whatever that thing had, the organism that is descended from it must have the same genetic code because it's descended from it. And anything else that's descended from it must also have the same genetic code. And let's, and let's suppose you say, well, it, maybe the code evolved. Well, if the code evolves, then what's going to happen is you're going to read the message, which is the message encoded on the genome, which is the sequence of nucleotide bases. And, but if you've evolved the code, that means that you will turn it into a different amino acid. And so you'll, you'll, you'll get the wrong proteins, and, and, and therefore the organism will 
be screwed up. It'll have the wrong proteins. It won't be optimal. It won't work. It might die, whatever. So based on that argument, Francis Crick said, well, the genetic code can't evolve. It's a frozen accident. It must be whatever accidentally the, the ancestor of life on Earth had, and it must be frozen because it's impossible to evolve. Because if you change the message whilst you're in the process of evolution, it will make no sense whatsoever. And so that was the, that was the dogma uh, for decades. And around about um, the you know, nine, middle 1990s, early 2000s, people started to realize that, that that probably was not correct. Because of the assumption you made? Or? No, but let me get to it empirically. So this is, this is now the direct answer to your question. So my, my answers are long, uh, are long-winded. And the reason is because nobody knows what I'm telling you. The stuff I'm telling you, you won't find it in most textbooks or, or books and things like this. It's, even though the papers are there, it's an, it, it, it's an amazing story and it's just not, not very well known. So I'm telling you the whole story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, that's a great, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so, okay, so, so now, so what do people do? They, they started to say, well, is there anything special about the genetic code that tells you whether it really is a frozen accident or whether it tells you it's something special. So um, Haig and Hurst and also Nick Goldman, I think they were the earliest people in in the mid-90s to come up with a brilliant way to figure this out. So the idea was this, um, and it really relates, well, also Al Steinberger in the the 60s, and this was all based on work that Carl Woese, my friend and collaborator here, um, had done in about 1965-1966. So the idea was, the the, the physical idea is this, let's suppose that um, you want to say how good is a genetic code. A good genetic code should be one that if you tell it, I want to encode this particular amino acid to make this particular protein, you're pretty much guaranteed to get that amino acid in the right position in that protein, so the protein will fold or flop around in the way that it's supposed to do for its functional significance. So that's what you want of a code. But of course, all of biology is full of mistakes and errors, and things are fluctuating, and, and um, you know the cell is in a crowded place, and things are moving around. And so it's really a miracle that you can get anything accurate at all. And and, and of course, if you get the wrong amino acid, then then you're screwed. So so a good genetic code is not one that is going to be precise. It's one that if you make a mistake, the mistake that you make is going to give you an amino acid which will perhaps have very similar properties to the one that the genome said you need to have. And therefore, you've got a decent chance that the protein will still be able to function, still be able to fold or whatever it it, it needs to be able to do. And so Jeanette... Good genetic codes are ones that are able to, when they make errors, they make errors that are not fatal. They're errors that basically um, will replace the wrong amino, the right amino acid with something that is not too bad and is guaranteed to do so. Okay, so that that's the physical idea. Now the mathematical idea is how how do you tell? You know how do you quantify that and, and, and construct the, the best genetic code. So, so this goes back to Carl Woese in the 1960s. So he, others already had this, this idea. So he decided to work out what properties of amino acids would be the ones that are optimized 
by a, a, a code, a genetic code. And for reasons that I'm not going to go into because they're quite complicated, um, he came up with a, a, a way to measure the sort of balance between hydrophobicity and hydrophilicity of uh, amino acids in a particular type of environment. Um, and, and his thinking about why you should do this is somewhat nonlinear, and I can't, you know, it's hard to ju justify. This is just the work of somebody who's a genius. So, so, but what he did was he figured out that there should be this balance because he understood something about the chemistry, and he had an idea about what primordial life would be like. And so he then made uh, did paper chromatography experiments uh, of the amino acids in these particular water pyridine mixtures, which is what he varied. He varied the concentration of water in these things, plotted the, uh, the mobility under paper chromatography, and, and was able to come up with a number, a single number, that told you how well the amino acids would diffuse in that kind of uh, in that kind of environment, and that diffusion is can be mapped into a, me a measure of, of hydrophobicity and hydrophilicity, something to do with the polarity of the of the amino acids. Today, we would probably the closest thing to that is what a chemist would call Grantham polarity. Okay, so he measured this, and so so by the you know, so by 1966, you had these these numbers that he he just measured, and and you know you you really couldn't say, you know, why you should do this experiment, extract the the slope of how far a an amino acid will diffuse on log log paper, extract a number, and call that number something that's biologically significant. But anyway, he did that. So now what you do is this: this is, you 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 take the genetic code table. And now you say, well, why don't we just see what alternative genetic codes we can make? So think about this. You've got 20 amino acids of life. So you've got, uh, um, you can just permute them any way you want. So you've got 20 factorial uh, possible uh, genetic codes that you could imagine as ones that could be logically allowed. And so what you do is you um, sample from those by, say, a Monte Carlo simulation, which you, I'm sure you you. you you know, or we can explain it if you like to the to the listeners. And uh, once you've done that, um, then you can you can you can measure, um, you know, how well that genetic code that you generate minimizes error. So basically, what you do is you look at what happens when you replace the, uh, amino acids with other amino acids, and you can score it up in some particular way. Uh, so you sort of sum the squares of the differences of these polar requirement numbers, and you form some kind of metric. You weight it in some way. That's a lot of biochemistry in that. And in the end, you come up with a with a number. And and so now you do this for every genetic code that you can simulate. So you say, okay, fine. I've got enough computer time. I'll sample a million genetic codes. So you generate a million synthetic genetic codes compute this number, and then compute the probability distribution of that number. Okay, so you get some curve, which might look like a bell-shaped curve or something like this. And now the, the logic is this. If the real genetic code is just some randomly random frozen accident, it should, be, it should have a score in this measure of code quality that measures how well a code uh, does in minimizing it should have a score that is, you know, roughly inside this bell-shaped curve, this Gaussian curve of what the scores would be expected on, on, on chance. And when you do this calculation, 
uh, and you can do it in many different technical ways. I, I did a version of it in you know maybe ten or fifteen years ago, uh, where we were able to do some some tricks to do this in high precision. The original papers were done with just you know. Uh, uh, maybe by the turn of the century, maybe a million codes, but but the but the end result never really never really changed. What you found was that if you look at the codes you generate at random and the actual genetic code, the actual genetic code is way 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 out in the tail. The the the, the paper that I remember is by by Freeland and Hurst in like nineteen ninety eight or something. It was called the genetic code is one in a million. You generate a million synthetic codes, see how good they are at minimizing error, and none of them is as good as the actual observed genetic code. So that's fantastic, because this tells you that the code is not a random accident. It, it is absolutely special. It really is maybe not the best code at minimizing errors that you could mathematically construct, but there is no such thing because you know there isn't a precise measure of goodness. So it really is a, it really is something that is not just there at random. There's 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 real um, you know there's something that's happened that's optimized it. And and so that, so that's the story of of the of the quality of the of the genetic code and how you find good ones and bad ones. Very cool, very cool. So also in your papers, you've kind of described the genetic code as an innovation sharing protocol. That's a very interesting characterization of it. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, I can. So, but I'm going to tell the story my way. So, 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 so the work that I did that you're talking about, uh, its goal was to answer the following question. Francis Crick says the genetic code can't evolve for all sorts of good reasons. It will kill you if it evolves. And then, on, and then 30 years later, we discover compelling evidence that the genetic code did evolve. Okay, so you've got a paradox. And so my work resolved that paradox. Uh, and and the, the, so it, I, I don't know if you, if you want to, me to, to describe it, I, I will, but I can answer your question. The, the, the thing that we, the, the, there are many things that we realized, and, and you can ask me more about those if you want. The things that we, we realized, the most important thing, was that because you know, the genetic code is not a, a phenotypic trait, that's one of the things. It's not like, well, if you're tall enough, then you can reach the fruit at the top of the tree, and so so you'll have an an advantage. Having a good genetic code is not one of those those sorts of traits. At least it doesn't seem like it would be. But but it turns out that you can still get a selective advantage by having a a good uh, genetic code. And 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 why? Well, because what genetic codes enable you to do is they enable you to share information. Now. Why is that important? When we figured out how the genetic code evolved, the thing that we understood was that it evolved through a process of evolution that is not the process that you normally think of. So normally you think of evolution as being, you know, mutations, and then you know, you, you know, you 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 know, you have a you have a baby, you you, you and that baby has you, you know your genome, but there's some mutations to it and so on. And that's called vertical transmission of genes to your descendants. Now, in, in, uh, in biology, you can have what's called horizontal gene transfer as well. So what that is, is let's suppose, you know, I teach a class on uh, renormalization group theory. It's a very technical uh, part of the graduate level uh, statistical physics. Okay, so uh, let's suppose that um, you said, look, I don't want to have to sit through 
25 lectures of you talking about all this higher mathematics and stuff. I just want to know how to do this stuff. Well, if we were bacteria, we could do this. I could pop out a piece of DNA and, and if it contained the gene for doing these sorts of calculations, of course, such a thing doesn't really exist. But if it did, I could pop out this piece of DNA, you could grab it, pull it in, stick it into your genome, and then bang, you'd be able to do that trick. You'd be able to do that, have, have that ability. You could transfer it. It's sort of like, uh, you know, it's all science fiction, but bacteria do it all the time. That's, in fact, how antibiotic resistance is being uh, transmitted around the world. And that's why our antibiotics don't work, because bacteria can transmit genes, good or bad, to organisms that they're not related to. And so now you're realizing that the process of evolution is not just this slow mutational process, but it can involve large changes where you know whole bits of DNA, in fact, even whole genomes, can be swapped between, between organisms. And so then you can say, well, wait, if I get some new piece of DNA, I can now do something new with it. So, so now I'm sharing innovations because I'm, I'm able to share with you a functionality that you didn't have. Okay. Now, if I share that information with you, but you can't decode it because you've got the wrong genetic code, then it's useless what I just gave you. But if you can read it, then you can make use of it. So, so the genetic code is, in some sense, a platform for this innovate for sharing of innovation. And so, so, so it. So that's why I I call it an innovation sharing protocol. So let me give you a, a sort of example. You did your background in computer science, right? So let me give you a computer science example. It's not true today, but it was, certainly was true when I did this work about 10 years or so ago. Okay. So at that time, I think like 95% of the world's computers ran the Windows operating system. And, you know, maybe 1% ran the Mac operating system. Okay. And, and, and you might say, well, why the heck is that? Why, why did, you know, why did Microsoft have such a huge market share compared with with Apple in, in the computers. And, and you can say, you, you, you can make all sorts of conspiracy theories and business reasons and, and things like that. And I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna comment on those, but there really was a fundamental underlying reason for it right at the beginning of the computer age. And that was this, if you wanted to run any kind of software on your computer, whether it be you know, tax software or even early video conferencing software, whatever it might be, you could always find a, a developer had written code for that for the Windows operating system, but not for the Mac operating system. And why did they do that? Well, because they knew that because there's, you know, 10 times as many users, whatever it is, and you want to make money, you know, you're going to code it for, 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 for that platform rather than the other. So, so in, in other words, the platform with the largest number of users has an advantage. So, so the platform that basically is the sort of universal language, the, the Windows platform, as a, you know, once you've got that, it has a compelling advantage that you know cannot be over, overcome, and it will it will survive and, and win. And, and so, so the so so the innovation, so being able to share innovations, which is what downloading a piece of software and running it on your on your PC is, 
the innovation sharing protocol is the thing that actually gets selected by who, whichever pool of users, whichever protocol has the biggest pool of users. And so, and so you have competition between different groups, now going back to biology, different groups with different genetic codes. The ones that have the more users will be able to share innovations better. They'll be able to uh, adopt new biochemical niches and invade other locations better. And they will have more, uh, you know, more software available for them to use. And so, um, and so this, this process combined with horizontal gene transfer is, is what enables a genetic code to evolve. So then you might say, well, wait, why, why are there any, why is there a competition anyway? Well, think about what life would have been like, you know, 3.8 billion years ago. Okay. So today we're very highly optimized organisms. You know, think of us the automobile equivalent, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a Toyota Camry, you know, you know, so some very, very popular car, which is mass produced and very, very, uh, very well engineered. Um, now, if you go back a hundred years, the early automobiles were really crappy things. They didn't go very fast. They had, you know, all sorts of problems with them. And, but the thing about them was this. Now, let's suppose I go around to your house and it's, and it's 1900 and I'm in my car and the wheel falls off. And I say, oh, Dan, my wheel fell off. You say, well, no problem. I've got a spare bicycle in the garage here. Why don't you take the wheel off that and stick it on your car? So you say, yeah, fine, no problem. Do it. Just screw it on with a regular screw and then you're done. It, you can do that. Okay. Try doing that with a, with a modern, with a Toyota Camry, right? Well, good luck with that. I mean, you have to, you know, every, all the screws are proprietary, all the software to open up the car is proprietary. I mean, you simply can't do it. You're locked in. So the idea was that very early life, which really couldn't do very much at all, had very limited functionality, was able to share things through horizontal gene transfer and literally could use those functions that were shared. And by using those functions that were shared, by having an innovation sharing protocol, they were able to then um, you know, take on board new functionality and evolve faster. And this is the thing that I didn't tell you, which is when you go and you know, write this down mathematically and so on, you find that this horizontal gene transfer way of evolving codes evolves exponentially faster than any other uh, vertical way. And so it solves it one, in one fell swoop you know, first of all, uh, that there's a unique genetic code. You have one code just wins over everything. Microsoft wins. That's that's the end of it. Apple wins the iPhone wars, whatever. Okay, so one one code wins. That code is optimal because it's it's evolved, so it's become the best innovation sharing protocol, and it happens exponentially fast. So you solve the problem of how it is that life start, started from nothing 4.6 billion years ago when the planet started. If life started then, which it probably didn't, but if it started then, how is it possible that by 3.8 billion years, which is less than a billion years after the planet started, you already have the ancestors of the modern cell? Inconceivable that the evolution could happen that fast. Uh, but this is a way that explains how that could have happened. Right. So is it maybe a little surprising still that the code is optimal in the sense of like error tolerance? Because there seems to be kind of maybe like a 
com competition between like having a consistent protocol and then having like a robust code because no, i don't think there is because what happens when you, when you simulate this what happens is that once the code evolves to being very precise uh, it stops evolving naturally the reason is because most of the stuff that you could transfer back and forth will not improve anything so so it's like essentially the cell has in place a built-in firewall and in other words you know so translation is pretty locked down there's not much evolution of the translational process happening naturally other things that are not very important like say antibiotic resistance and you know some metabolism things and so on those are still evolving by this mechanism by this fast mechanism so, so the, me the, the mechanism is also automatically self-limiting. Um, okay, so I want to switch gears a bit, um, kind of maybe get into some more um, high-level thoughts in like biology just in general. So, um, you know, there's a short essay you wrote um, 14 years ago called Biology's Next Revolution. Right. And you wrote that um, the current approach of post-hoc modeling will be replaced by the interplay between quantitative prediction and experimental test nowadays more characteristic of the physical sciences. So, so do you think we've made some progress towards that, that aspirational goal? Or definitely. Definitely? Okay. Yes, yes, d d definitely. I think this is really one of the huge trends in, in, in biology. Um, you, know, you're, you were trained in computer science and now you're working in, 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 in a biology lab uh, uh, to, to sort of use some of the knowledge that you have to improve you know, imaging. Um, as a great as a great example, um, you know, super resolution imaging is a fantastic example. We can literally see inside living cells processes going on at the molecular level. Okay, it's in incredible that, that we can do this, and this is all done by using you know, various physics techniques um, to overcome the diffraction limit. The very clever things that that were were invented by people who are quantitative um, in you know, other areas, you know, we, we, people are routinely simulating what processes happen, doing computations, comparing those with experiments. Uh, it, I, I, here in Illinois, we, we have had a, a National Science Foundation um, Physics Frontier Center that uh, literally was, you know, some of the birth of these quantitative biology techniques, looking at living cells at a single molecule level. So this really has been a revolution, and and and, and you know, San Diego there is a quantitative biology program uh, run by Terry Hua and, and others, uh, where, where you know, the, the, if you go to uh, to some of the leading biology labs now in the country, UCSD or Harvard, MIT, you will find them full not just of biologists but people like you know, trained in computer science, theoretical physics. You know, mathematics stuff like this. It's a very different, def very different field. So, also as a physicist, um, are you? Do you think of biology maybe more in terms of an energy or information centric view? Like, are you thinking more in terms of metabolism and thermodynamics or genetics, or is there not really a specific preference to thinking in terms of those either lenses? Well, it's a great question. Uh, I think it depends on what the problem is that you're looking at. So, I, so these days, I'm, you know, I, I do a lot of work on ecology, and 
the, the typical way that people think about ecology is population dynamics. So you might say be studying the microbiome and you might be looking at the fluctuations of different types of bacteria in, in your, you know, your gut microbiome, for example. So, so the way people study that is they write down equations that describe how the numbers fluctuate and maybe you know, you have to take into account the viruses as well. So a virus will come along and kill a particular bacterium. And then that's, that bacterium's its concentration, its numbers will go down. And then another one will come along to, to occupy its niche and so on. So there's always these population fluctuations in biology. And that's one of the ways that we describe ecology. But then the other way to think about ecology is, in, is energy flow. You know, the, the ecosystems are powered typically by the sun or by, say, heat from the Earth's core or something like this. So, so now that energy has to, has to go somewhere and is used by organisms to do their biological function. And, and so those two different ways of thinking about biology, you know, one in terms of population biology, one in terms of metabolism, are, are disconnected by and large. And so, you know, one of the things that I think is a really important challenge is to sort of bring them together. And then, you know, the other thing that, that's part of that is, well, if you're going to bring those together, what about information? Because what is it, you know, what is the purpose of life? You know, what, do, what does life do? If you're, if you're a planet, you know, what do you, what do you think life is doing for you? And, and the answer to that question is that life is a process that enables planets to approach equilibrium. So think about that. When a planet is formed, there are many, many chemical disequilibria all over the, the, the physical structure. And those disequilibria, chemical potential differences, as a physicist or a chemist would call them, um, they, they eventually, that's literally how a battery works. It's chemical potential differences. And what happens is electrons flow through various uh, chemical processes to even those things out. So in perfect equilibrium, there would be no chemical potential differences. There would be no gradients. There would be no free energy gradients. Everything, you know, nothing would happen. That's what equilibrium is. Boring. Nothing happens. Okay. So what does life do? Well, those processes do get relaxed by chemical processes, things rust or whatever it is. But what biology or biological systems do is they can take those free energy differences in the environment and they can relax them faster than abiotic processes. They can short circuit them and extract the energy and use that energy to power living processes. And so what gives biology its competitive advantage over just pure chemical processes? Well, the answer is information sharing. And it's information sharing through genetic transfer, through the way that you know, metabolism is encoded uh, in, in genes and so on. So there's this fantastic picture where what life is, is it's, it's a process. It's a planetary process that enables planets to approach equilibrium because they, they're never going to get there. Uh, and life exists where it can outcompete abiotic processes extract free energy from the environment, leave no drop of free energy um, to, to be had by anybody. They use every last drop of it. And, and, that, and that's what powers living systems. So a couple more questions on the topic of how you think about things in biology. So, um, you know, Feynman famously said, you know, everything can be understood in terms of jiggling and wiggling of atoms. Do you think this is too 
reductionist or short-sighted a way of thinking about problems in biology, just thinking in terms of chemical or physical terms? Well, it depends what problem that you're interested in. Um, if you're interested in large-scale processes, like trying to understand um, you know, the distribution of organisms in an ecosystem, thinking at the atomic level is probably not going to be too helpful. So, so you know, when, when Feynman said that, he had a particular prejudice about what constituted biology. And, 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 and that's true if you want to understand, say, cell biology, perhaps. But, um, and it's very important in, in cell biology. If you want to look at how genes are expressed to make proteins, you find that there are all these fluctuations. There's a thing called stochastic gene expression. Again, something discovered probably around 20 years or so ago in its glory days, where you know it's not true that you know you want a particular protein in the cell and it's you know you're going to have 10 copies and it's going to be 10 and that's exactly it. It can be three or it can be 20. You know, it, it's a number that fluctuates, and because of all of those sorts of molecular level fluctuations, if you're trying to understand how species are organized in an ecosystem, you're trying to understand how um, you know, what is the rank abundance distribution of organisms? You know, what is the most abundant organism, the next most abundant, the next most abundant? And is there a pattern to the way that they, there are, those abundances are organized? That, that point of view won't help you at all. Right. Okay, then uh, lastly, I wanted to ask, um, you know, what is the downsides of thinking of biology just as a um, reverse engineering problem? Like, what's wrong with that? <laughs> and you kind of touched that in the, in the beginning of the conversation, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that there's several downsides. So it's, it's a, it, again, it's a, it's a great question. So it, yes, so, 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 so I do think of that modern biology is a kind of reverse engineer. And I, I think I've probably written this in print. So you can think of it, the, the, the biological enterprise is this. Uh, so here's a body, say, okay, yours or mine. And uh, we need to know how it works so we can fix it when it goes wrong. Okay, fair enough. So there's a problem in engineering. So now you've got to figure out how it works and, and try to try to fix it. Um, this would be like saying, well, okay, here's my here's a computer. Let's suppose you came down from Mars. You'd never seen a computer before, and I gave you this thing, and I said, right, okay, tell me what this thing is doing, and. And, and so you look at it and find it's a lump of plastic and metal and silicon. You, you, know, you have no idea. And, and in fact, the right answer to the question is, oh, this thing is just a Turing machine with a von Neumann architecture. Uh, it, it can, it's capable of universal computation. But you know, just looking at the physical instantiation in front of you, you would never you would never know that. If I gave you, now, because our computers, the ones in front of my desk, you know, very sophisticated, you know, it's got, you know, 40 years of Moore's law to, of, of complexity that is, is embedded. Um, if you went back to the very early computers, which were, you know, relays and switches, or maybe before that, mechanical computers, it would be very easy to figure out what the thing is doing. Oh, this thing is just moving bits around. Okay. Oh, I bet this thing is a Turing machine. You know, you, you'd be able to figure it out much more, much more easily. So the problem with reverse engineering life is you're trying to short circuit things. You're trying to figure out, can I, can I fix this machine? Could you repair a computer if you didn't really know what it did or how it worked? That's kind of what we're trying to do with biology because it's so so significantly funded uh, by 
you know, by medicine. And, and, and I'm not saying that's a wrong thing, but it's but it gets in the way of trying to understand how these things really work. So, so from my perspective, you know, I'm not a doctor, and I'm not trying to do translational research. Um, but if I want to understand um, a living system, I want to understand it in its very simplest form, and I want to then understand how it came to be like that. And then I want to understand the following question: What is the mathematical abstraction of which biology is an instantiation. So I can make a computer out of silicon, and plastic, and liquid crystals, displays, and things like this. And it's the, it does exactly the same thing as the early computers that John von Neumann built in the Institute for Advanced Study in the 1950s, where they were built out of relays and switches and fermionic valves. It's just much smaller and more efficient, but it does the same thing. It's a universal Turing machine with a von Neumann architecture. So they're just different instantiations, the same mathematics. So I want to know, okay, fine. How is it that living systems are able to evolve complexity in an open-ended way? You know, they, they don't just evolve self-replicating you know, RNA molecules, and then that's the end of life. No, they, they keep going, and you, and you get bacteria, and you get yeast, and you get dinosaurs, and you get humans, okay? and it, it keeps on going on. Why? Where does that, where does that come from? And, you know, you, 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 so you have to try to understand what, what is the process of complexification? What is fundamentally behind how, how life evolved? And so if you just try to reverse engineer a sort of snapshot of a living system and look at the pieces, you can do that and sort of get some rough idea of, of how they work, but you won't get a real understanding of what a, a living system is. And in my view, living systems, the fundamental aspect of a living system is that they are capable of evolution. And so if you want to understand living systems, you have to understand how they evolve. And I don't just mean how they evolve you know, you know, in genes mutating or horizontal gene transfer and so on. Those are just instantiations. Mathematically, what is the process of evolution? What is the dynamical system of which evolution, the biology, is an exemplar? Well, we don't, we don't know the answer to that. I don't even know what kind of mathematics to use to describe that kind of dynamical system. So in many ways, for me as a physicist, the attraction of biology is that not just solving biological problems, but actually it extends the scope of physics. Physi when you study physical systems, you're looking at systems that just do what they're told. They're engineered, and you, know, you write down the equation of motion or the Hamiltonian or Newton's laws of motion for it, and it just follows those laws blindly, like planets going around the sun or whatever. Biological systems don't do that. When you try to interfere with them, they change the rules under which they operate. You try to say, okay, well, um, the bacteria are bad, so let's kill bacteria. Sounds a good idea. That's exactly what the way an engineer would think. But then what happens is the damn thing evolves. And, and now you've got worse bacteria, not just that they evaded you, but now they, they can defeat what you, the way you tried to limit them. So your job got worse. It's clearly the wrong way to do things. So you can't control a dynamical system if you don't understand its intrinsic dynamics. We see the same thing, not just with antibiotics. We see the same thing with insecticides. We see the same thing with herbicides. In the Midwest, we have a thing called Roundup resistance. You know, a farmer will say, fine, there's these weeds. Let's clear them with this nice stuff called Roundup which will get rid of the weeds. And it works for perfectly well for a few years. But now the weeds are, are immune to that. You can try it with COVID, right? With COVID, you know, with, oh, let's, let's make a vaccine. Great, we've got a vaccine. 
problem is solved. Well, unfortunately, it's not, because as a society, we're engaging in a, in a really, uh, really terrible uh, experiment right now. We have roughly half the population vaccinated and the other half not. And if I had to design a biological experiment to evolve a virus that can evade a vaccine, what I would do is exactly what we're doing. I take a population with half of the people vaccinated, right. the other half not. The other the half that is not will generate all kind of variants, all kind of mutations. They will inf try to infect the people who are vaccinated, and the ones that will emerge from that will be the ones that right, are right. selected by the vaccinated people to be to be the ones that are uh, vaccines that are mutant. And that's exactly what is yeah. what is happening now. We're doing exactly the the worst thing, and that that comes about from, uh, in some sense, a failure of the reverse engineering mindset, which is it's not engineering. It, you cannot think of biological systems in the same way that you think of engineered systems and the same way you think of physical systems. They are different and you have to understand them dynamically. And if you don't understand them dynamically, you will, <laughs> you will lose. And, and this has happened time and time again in biology. It's an, again, another example why we can't treat cancer properly. You know, somebody's got cancer, okay, let's poison them to death with chemotherapy. Okay, well, the cancer, it works for a little bit, but then the cancer of, uh, cells evolve around the chemotherapy agents mm -hmm. and it stops working. So we, you need better approaches. You need to understand it at a more fundamental level. Okay, awesome, Nigel. Those are great closing thoughts. Um, thanks again for uh, doing the podcast. Sure. Uh, thanks for your great questions. Awesome.